Now what's the word? Democracy. 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 You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. The seeds you sow will spread democracy. You need to know. Democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Election Connection on WFMP. 106.5 FM, your local community-focused radio station, and we broadcast from the Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. I'm your host, Ruth Newman. Today's program features Professor Enid Trucios haynes from the U of L Brandeis School of Law, who spoke on November 21st at the Louisville League of Women Voters at their third Monday Democracy in Action meeting. So the next voice you hear is Dee Pregliasco, president of the Louisville League of Women Voters. Let me welcome everybody. This is our first post-election meeting and some of what Professor uh, Trucios Haynes will talk about, will tell us what we still have to pay attention to is the legislature, because even with that vote, that vote being the no vote on Amendment 2, it doesn't mean the legislature is not going to try to still do all kinds of things about reproductive rights. So keep that in mind, and they can put additional amendments on the ballot in 2024, okay? And that's not that far off because we're only, what, less than a month and a half to 2023. Part of why I wanted uh, Enid to come is she spoke at Women's Equality Day about all of the history that relates to all of the amendments that have to do with voting. And what we know is, okay, we have assumed that our voting rights were protected. And what we have found out, particularly the last probably six or seven years, after all of the fights that went on in the 60s and gave us the Voting Rights Act, is that voting, our voting rights are not very protected. So that's why I wanted her to come and give us this background so we can understand all of these uh, particular issues. Enid's resume is about this long and this long. She has been at the law school since 1993. Oh, okay. And she's very active in the community, very active in the area of immigration law. I mean, she knows everything there is to know about con law, and again, that's why I wanted to have her here. And she's going to fill in a lot, she said. So go from yes. there. So thank you, Dee, for inviting me to be here, and thanks. It's a pleasure to be here to talk a little bit about our rights. And you can see from the title of the presentation, I'm really talking about the constellation of rights that protect us, which voting rights is the core of those rights that are important to participation in our democracy to ensure equal citizenship and equal participation. But those aren't the only rights. So the 19th Amendment, establishing voting rights for women, the 15th Amendment, which prohibited discrimination based on race and uh, which only applied to men. So we've had voting rights that have been enshrined in the Constitution but have not 
been fully protected. And what was the goal of establishing those voting rights? Was to ensure that there is equal citizenship and equal participation in our democracy. And so I'm going to talk today a little bit about all of the rights that are connected to ensure that we can participate equally and fully in our, in our democracy. So um, I think as the slide shows that we're talking about the core principles of freedom, liberty, and equality, and how are those manifested in our system, right? So we have the Bill of Rights, the first eight amendments, which establish individual rights. Many of them relate to criminal justice rights, but the First Amendment, um, a key right, which is part our voting rights to express our views. Um, and to prevent the government from establishing religion and to ensure that we have free exercise of religion. We also have the 14th Amendment, which added the Equal Protection Clause to the Constitution, created a Citizenship Clause to make it clear that all persons born in the United States would be citizens of the United States, and also included a limitation on state action, so states cannot infringe on life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So, the key Equal Protection Clause and Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment were a key part of our new system that emerged after the Civil War. The 15th Amendment, of course, um, granted African American men the right to vote, and then the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. And so in thinking about um, that constellation of rights that ensure, or that are designed to protect and advance equal um, citizenship and equal participation, we also know that the promise of these amendments to the Constitution were not realized. So in terms of the 15th Amendment, despite the explicit grant in the Constitution to ensure that the voting rights would not be denied based on race, we know that it took a century for voting rights to actually become available to all citizens of the United States without regard to race, and that was through the Voting Rights Act. And only then, after the Department of Justice began reviewing voting district lines that happened, that were drawn in different states, and in those states where there were some of the worst practices that, of exclusion, such as literary te literacy tests, poll taxes, and things like that. So we know that the, rights, that the rights that were protected by these amendments were not fully realized. And those poll taxes and literacy tests and other means were used in the Southwest against Mexican-Americans as well. So a broad range of exclusion. And also we know when we think about the 19th Amendment, uh, although it guaranteed women the right to vote, it did not guarantee black women the right to vote and other women of color who were excluded based on racial discrimination. So it was a limited protection that came to be fully realized over time, but still upon enactment did not really uh, provide the breadth of protection that we might expect from a constitutional amendment that was clearly designed to address um, equal citizenship and equal participation. And so when we think about the, that promise of equal participation, it is through an understanding of the Equal Protection Clause that voting rights are identified, uh, the idea of one person, one vote, the idea that uh, each person's vote should not be diluted in terms of representation in state legislatures, for example, or the federal legislature. All of those rights come from the Equal Protection Clause, and it wasn't really until 1963, in a case called Baker versus Carr, where the court recognized the idea of vote dilution. I think it was in the city of Tuskegee, or maybe it was the, yeah, the city of Tuskegee, Alabama, where the Voting Rights District had not been redrawn since the 1900 census until 1960. And so 
what that meant is that, and there had been a lot of rural to urban migration, it was Atlanta. And so there was a much greater density of population in Atlanta than there was in the other more rural parts of the state. And so as a result, the weight of votes for those who were living in the rural areas was much greater. Their votes counted for much more um, in terms of electing representatives than all of those residing in the city. And it was in Baker versus Carr where the court recognized that it's possible for the Equal Protection Clause to be a vehicle to look more closely at those kinds of inequalities that occur in terms of how voting districts are drawn. Also, the Due Process Clause identifies other rights that are important in terms of ensuring equal citizenship and equal participation. And um, all the more important today, as we see, we have a Supreme Court that is upending longstanding expectations um, and rewriting the rights that we had long expected to be part of our everyday lives. Um, we've never had a decision where the court has restricted rights that it has recognized. And so the Dobbs decision last term, the decision made in June 2022 to overrule Roe versus Wade is a watershed in many respects, and that being one of them. So we know that equality, the Equal Protection Clause, all the Due Process Clause, together with voting rights as, as protected by the Constitution through the Equal Protection Clause, also representing our First Amendment rights, together create that opportunity for equal citizenship. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And the next slide talks about that, exactly the road to equal citizenship, thinking about um, the abolition movement, which was a movement that joined women who were uh, advocating for w voting rights for women and those who were advocating for the abolition of slavery. And the expectation was by those advocates that rights to vote would be incorporated broadly across for both men and women, for uh, black people in the United States and other people of color in the United States. And so um, that was the abolitionist movement we saw that after the Civil War, that was part of the push for the different amendments to the Constitution, the 14th Amendment. There was great discussion about the, the hope that voting rights would be given to women, included in the explanation of the 14th Amendment. But Section 2, which talked about apportionment of the 14th Amendment, only referred to men, um, saying that the right to vote in federal elections may not be denied to any male inhabitants of a state that's 20, who was 21 years old and a citizen of the United States. So it was a great disappointment that the 14th Amendment did not um, include voting rights for women. And in fact, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were, quote, enraged that Congress privileged the voting rights of men over those of white women. And having realized that the 14th Amendment was not going to be a vehicle for voting rights and then the 15th Amendment a few years later when it was adopted also did not include women's rights to vote was a great disappointment. And um, it split the women's movement in some respect as well, because um, there were those who saw that the 14th Amendment having adopted an equal protection clause and the 15th Amendment later on having recognized and prohibited racial discrimination in voting was part of the path to get to equal citizenship and, and to equal participation. But it was a challenge at the time. And um, so at the time, and one of the points I always make whenever I talk about this, about how race and the 19th Amendment are intertwined in terms of advocacy, in terms of the uh, coalitions that were built and fractured over time. But that advocacy together was important to realizing women's rights to vote and also to fully realize the rights of black people in our country to vote in 1965 through the Voting Rights Act.
but it was a bitter disagreement about the 14th Amendment not including um, women's rights to vote. And so in thinking about when the, the passage of the 19th Amendment, it was, and I'm sure as all of you know, I can't, you know the history as well as I do, I think it was part of the Women's League of Voters, but um, the incredible advocacy is a model for making social change, I think. The fact that um, advocates went to the states, went to the federal government, lobbied Congress for legislation, for an amendment, and then at the same time lobbied state legislatures for those changes and had those changes made and then made sure that people went to the polls and voted uh, is extraordinary advocacy and it really is a model for social change in our country. And having won the right to vote in the 19th Amendment, and similarly as we saw in the 15th Amendment, it is an instrument of empowerment and it ensures that there is the opportunity to have equal participation, to have representatives of our choice, to ensure that our democracy discusses and addresses the issues of importance to all of the constituents. And so the 19th Amendment also was viewed as uh, democratizing the family, right? So the idea that there would be more than one voice that spoke for the family would not only be the male voice that spoke for the family, but rather every adult uh, women would have the power to speak for their families and to have the agency to make decisions and vote on issues of concern. And as I mentioned in the slide, it was an opportunity for urban, immigrant, and economically disadvantaged women's, women to change policy. And they saw it that way. It, the discussions, the advocacy to pass the 19th Amendment resulted in marches throughout many cities in the, in the country, but often in urban areas where women were working and policies were really not focused on the concerns of women who were working or in crowded urban settings. So sanitation, clean water, all of those kinds of issues were not top of mind for policymakers. And the hope was that through the right to vote that women would be able to influence policymakers. And so it was an opportunity to have wider issues addressed, broader issues that were a concern to women. And interestingly, and I'm sure all of you know this as well, the women were divided about uh, whether the 19th Amendment should be passed and enacted. And there were some women, more elite women, and often in urban areas as well, who believed that they were better positioned because of their positions of power in their, in their cities to advocate for change. And so therefore, as members of foundations and other nonprofit organizations, that they could have the influence over policy uh, rather than having the right to vote broadly available to many women. And after the 19th Amendment was enacted, in the 1920 presidential election, only one out of three women voted. Many were really unsure about what to do and what this meant and, and the power right, of having the right to vote. And so what, what was needed and what happened was a lot of educational programming, informing citizens about the importance of voting and why it makes a difference in terms of legislative policy in terms of school boards in every election imaginable from local to federal to president. Um, and that's how the League of Women Voters uh, became one of the central organizations to ensure that women and people were educated about the importance of the right to vote. So a key um, part of the history after the 19th Amendment. And so this slide, I talk about black women and equal citizenship, right? So. Before 1920, black women fought for the 19th Amendment and realized that it could be a vehicle for empowerment for them and to preserve the 15th Amendment. At the same time that advocacy for the 19th Amendment was happening, 
there were very concerted efforts by different groups to overturn the 15th Amendment, mm -hmm. to rescind the 15th Amendment, right? So the idea that we should not have women voting because, as I point out there, the, the idea was that women were unfit voters and should not be part of the electorate. There were concerns about the temperance movement and how they might not vote to overrule the 18th Amendment and allow in the 21st Amendment to end prohibition. There were concerns about women voting in the South and changing policies there. So uh, there was a concern about what the role of women would be in voting, and particularly for black women in the South, the concern about black women voting. And we know after 1920, black women did not gain the right to vote, and it really didn't become a reality until 1965 in the Voting Rights Act. But women, black women participated in the movement, recognizing the power of the vote, right? And that the dignity and respect for them and their families was important, that the 19th Amendment could be a vehicle for that. It was a disappointment that it, it was not, but the recognition that coalitions and collaboration to make sure that equal citizenship and equal participation was available, that part of the movement was to move forward on the suffrage movement. So it is important to note that that support happened even though it was unlikely that uh, black women would be able to participate and have the benefit of having the right to vote. And I also always like to mention that, that there were diverse voices that also were pursuing equal citizenship and recognizing the importance of the vote as an instrument for empowerment. It was Reva Siegel, who, a professor at Yale Law School, who came up with the term instrument of empowerment, but I think it really speaks to the power of what the right to vote means. So when we think about citizenship as one of the key precursors to ha exercising the right to vote, there was a lot of citizenship exclusion that happened in our country. I show a picture of uh, Mabel Ping Hua, who led uh, Chinese and Chinese American marchers in what at the time and still up till today is one of the largest parades in history. Um, it was the largest women's suffrage parade um, at the time. She was born in China, so she was ineligible to vote and could never become eligible to vote because she could not vote because of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which denied Asian people the right to vote and said that anyone who was an immigrant from an Asian country could never apply for citizenship. They were barred ineligible for applying for citizenship. And also, our citizenship process was a site of exclusion. Um, thinking about the 1790 one initial naturalization act that was passed by the first Congress said that only free white men were eligible to vote. After the Civil War, the Citizenship Act process was amended by the 1870 Naturalization Act by allowing any non-citizen, any immigrant who was a free white person or a person of African descent could apply for um, citizenship, but that excluded a wide group, many people who were not free white people or not people of African descent who were part of our nation. And so, as I mentioned, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 only rescinded in 1943. Uh, so for generations, people would have children here in the United States who were U.S. citizens because of the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment, but their parents could never become citizens of the United States. Native Americans also were limited in terms of their voting rights and their ability to have citizenship in the United States. Um, and it was only in 1924 not by amendment to the Constitution, but by legislation passed by Congress that Native Americans were eligible for full citizenship rights and then, as a result, could vote in their states where they resided. And the problem with 
that legislation, the 1924 law that was enacted, is that it provided that states themselves had the authority to determine who was voting in their states to make Native Americans eligible to vote. And it, as I say in the slide, it took another 40 years for Native Americans to have the right to vote in all 50 states. And they were subject to some of the same discriminatory practices we've seen, poll taxes, literacy tests, intimidation at the polls, um, so that they would not exercise their right to vote. And as we might recognize that Native Americans should have been beneficiaries of the 15th Amendment, right, uh, no discrimination based on race, and we're not. And interesting, I teach immigration law in my class when we talk about um, Native American rights. There was a separate naturalization oath that Native Americans took, and there was a male and female oath. Part of the male oath was a commitment to give up their ties to the land and to take up farming and adopt Western ways, I guess. And then for women, they were handed a little purse with some money and that that would be the way in which they would organize their family life, understanding that the value of money in exchange for goods rather than the way of life that they had lived, but that they women were responsible for managing that. So yes, that did exist. Our history of really significant um, discrimination against Native Americans in our country. We talked about the 1965 Voting Rights Act a case in 2012 effectively gutted the Shelby County versus Holder, effectively gutted the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act established this pre-clearance process for any jurisdiction that had very blatant discriminatory practices as part of their voting mechanisms in their states. And those states were required to send their voting district maps to the Department of Justice to have them pre-cleared to make sure that the states were not retrogressing and adopting different maps that might result in, in racial discrimination. And in 2012, the Supreme Court said that there is really no evidence that there's discrimination in voting today in 2012. And therefore, because black people were participating in part of the electorate, and because we didn't have the gross injustice of literacy tests and poll taxes and other things that have been overruled by the court and other mechanisms that were clearly blatantly discriminatory. So the lack of, of both uh, extreme discriminatory measures and the fact that more people were voting meant that there really was not a continued need for th that pre-clearance process, although it had been reauthorized by Congress after hearings and, and substantial evidence had been submitted to Congress to determine why it needed to be reauthorized, which was not a partisan vote. So I think it was 99 to 1 in the Senate to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act in 2006. So this was not a controversial issue as far as Congress was concerned. Um, similarly, with regard to the Voting Rights Act, to the, in this current term before the Supreme Court, there's a case, Merrill versus Alabama, looking at the voting district map that was drawn and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 2 requires that those who are drawing district lines do not unfairly dilute the power of the vote of members of color of the community. So it bars discrimination on the basis of race, color, or membership in one of the language minority groups. And the idea of having Section 2, Congress intended to protect against subtle and hidden forms of racial discrimination in voting. And so Section 2 was added to make sure that if there were practices that resulted in vote dilution, that those could be challenged in court. Well, Merrill versus Alabama involves 
the district map that was drawn after the 2020 census, which had seven districts. And one of the districts was designed to have a majority of black Americans in that district. And the question was whether there should have been more minority districts that were drawn because 27% of Alabama's voting age population um, are black. And so the way in which the district was drawn is it drew like this wiggly line to pull out voters and put everyone that it could, uh, the strongest communities of interest, so black voters, and took long-standing districts that had a majority of black voters in them, the second district that existed in Alabama, and it redrew the line to cut across those districts. And so as a result, only having one district. And that's being challenged in the Supreme Court right now. And it's unclear how the court will decide this case. And even the challenge that is, there's racial discrimination involved in this is that the court, whenever there's any allegation of race-based decision-making, that is the desire to create communities of interest in terms of voting district lines and drawing together, as voting districts always do, in drawing together black voters, for example, that that in and of itself, using race as one of the criteria, might be a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, which kind of turns the 15th Amendment on its head because it was designed to prevent racial discrimination in voting, and the Voting Rights Act is designed to ensure that racial discrimination in voting does not occur in terms of drawing the district lines. So it's an effort by the federal government to look more closely to ensure we don't go backward in terms of racial discrimination in voting. So we will see where that goes. Um, also, the court in 2019 decided that it would no longer look at extreme partisan gerrymanders, and that's when uh, one party dominates the state legislature and draws the district lines to give itself all of the power. And this is not unique to one party or the other. Democrats did it, uh, Republicans did it. A case went to the Supreme Court, the Rucho versus Common Cause, that challenged districts that were drawn by Democrats and Republicans that demonstrated the extreme power that the party in power can exercise in drawing district lines and excluding and almost ensuring re-election of candidates of their party. And as we know, more recently, efforts to reform the Voting Rights Act to bring back the pre-clearance process and amend the act and ensure that there's early access to voting, to ensure that there could be same-day registration and other ways in which to ensure and widen access to voting have failed in Congress earlier this year. The House had passed two bills, but the, the Senate did not similarly adopt those two bills. So those have died in Congress, and congressional session will end at the end of this year. And so the next session, those are not likely to be brought up again, but maybe they will. We can be hopeful with advocacy that they might. And also what we've seen in uh, the last few years is a lot of states enacting voter restrictions. So things broadened as a result of COVID to accommodate voting by mail. I voted by mail during COVID here in Kentucky because that was way more convenient and I was worried about being in a crowd. And so those opportunities that existed, there's been a major retrenchment in many states. So consolidating polling locations and moving drop boxes or limiting the number of drop boxes that are available to drop off those votes. And we've all seen the news recently and the, before the midterm elections of people watching the, the drop boxes with firearms. And so our voting rights are subject to contention and, and it's very real and, and palpable here and throughout the United States. 
and you are listening to a presentation given on November 21st, 2022 by Professor Enid Trucios Haynes from the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. She spoke at the Louisville League of Women Voters third Monday Democracy in Action meeting and she reviewed amendments to our Constitution that were enacted throughout American history that affected voting rights. And this is WFMP 106.5 FM Grassroots Community Radio, where your voice can also be heard simply by going to our website, forwardradio.org, and clicking on Participate. Now, let's get back to Professor Trucios Haynes. So when we think about our voting rights and, and the constellation of rights that also ensure our voting rights and that are affected by voting rights, I think it's important to talk about what are those other constitutional guarantees that are essential to equal citizenship and equal participation. And so this is kind of a broad overview, but we'll touch at the end of this portion of my talk, we'll deal, talk a little bit about the Dobbs decision and overruling Roe versus Wade. But first, when we think of the Civil War Amendments, not only were the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments significant for the substance, right, except the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, abolishing enslavement, and also abolishing racial discrimination voting in the 15th Amendment, those three amendments also restructure our government. So initially, when we think about how, are, how is liberty protected in our constitutional system of government, the framers thought that the division of power was the way in which uh, liberty would be protected. That meaning co-equal branches dividing power amongst themselves and so no branch could have absolute authority, uh, but also dividing power between the states and federal governments. And so the Civil War Amendments for the first time explicitly limited, the 14th Amendment limited state governments from taking action. So states were required to provide equal protection of the law and to ensure that life, liberty, and property was not infringed upon without due process of the law. So that's one way in which the Civil War Amendments restructured our government. Another interesting feature of our history is that the original Constitution did not include the Bill of Rights because the theory was that the structure, the way in which our government operates, would be enough protection. But the compromise was to add the Bill of Rights and to bring in some of the states who were reluctant to join um, the new government. And as a result of that original compromise, to, to create the Bill of Rights, the first Congress uh, it passed those bills, they went out to the states, there were uh, amendments to the Constitution. The idea was that those rights that are protected, the First Amendment rights, rights to free exercise of religion, uh, many of the criminal procedure rights that are protected in the right to Sixth Amendment right to counsel, all of those rights were only limits on the federal government. The theory was that state governments would protect those civil rights and liberties. And so from that original Constitution and adding the first 10 amendments, really the first eight are the ones that are really tied to individual rights, there really wasn't an opportunity for states to be bound by that. And so states did have their own constitutions and defined rights dif differently, sometimes similarly to the federal rights, sometimes not, and were free to interpret um, what the right against self-incrimination might be very different in different states than it was at the federal level. So that's one of the interesting features that the Bill of Rights never operated as a limitation on state action. And it was only until the Civil War amendments were added that it could be a limit on state action, that there were explicit language to limit state action. And of course, 
that explicit limit on state action had to be interpreted by the Supreme Court. And the question of what does it mean to have equal protection under the laws? What does the due process clause limit? How does it limit states in their action? So first, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the equal protection clause and how interpretations developed over time. And so talk a little bit about how, as I mentioned earlier, the equal protection clause became the vehicle to protect against vote dilution. Um, so there is a component of the equal protection clause that deals with voting rights but also the Equal Protection Clause and its def the definition of equality that was adopted in 1868 in the 14th Amendment was subject to a very narrow interpretation uh, by the Supreme Court. So we had a system that allowed racial apartheid to exist in our country. And you know sometimes it's very harsh to say that directly, but that's the system that we had that had different rights for black people in our country and other people of color, depending on where they lived. Same thing happened to Asians on the West Coast and Mexican-Americans in Texas and near the border, uh, but not to the extent that we saw in the South and in the North, the, the level of discrimination. So we had, by law, allowed separate facilities, which were unequal, inherently unequal, and we that existed in our country from 1868, the adoption of the Equal Protection Clause, really until 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education, when the court adopted a new definition of equality, a definition of equality that would not allow separate but equal to continue, that uh, would protect all people in the United States. But it took nearly 100 years for that definition to change and to, to have a fuller understanding of what equality means in our country. And uh, Brown versus Board of Education ordering the desegregation of schools, uh, K through 12 schools in the country, that ultimately didn't happen until 10 years later when legislation was passed tying funding to the actual desegregation of schools um, throughout the South and in other parts of the country. So that we had a new vision of equality that was adopted in Brown versus Board of Education, but that idea of equality did not include equal protection for women based on gender discrimination. Gender discrimination operated freely and women did not have rights in their marriages to um, have credit cards, they were to uh, make determinations about their families. So very significant limitation on women and their ability to exercise those family rights that were anticipated in the 19th Amendment advocacy. That really didn't happen until 1973, this case that I mentioned in the slide, Reed, Reed was the first case in which the court invalidated a gender stereotype, and it involved a family, a husband and wife, who uh, had applied to be administrators of an estate. So someone had died in their family, and the question was, who could be an administrator of the estate? And the law said that only men could be administrators of estates, that a woman could never take on that job. And so that case went to the Supreme Court to challenge whether or not there were stereotypes at the base of that distinction that was drawn between men and women. And ultimately the court found that yes, there were stereotypes and unthinking archaic notions about the capacities and role of women in our society. And that had no place in, in determining um, rights and obligations and, and our ability to participate in the full range of social life in our, in our country. And so 1973, the Supreme Court says yes, gender stereotypes, we want to be suspicious of gender stereotypes when they're based on these old-fashioned notions of the role of women in our society, but also acknowledging that sometimes those gender classifications, differences between men and women might be appropriate. 
And um, so 1973, it wasn't until 1976 when the court took up a case and officially adopted an intermediate level of scrutiny, meaning that it was going to look closely at any kind of gender classification and the government would have to justify it, showing there was an important government interest and that the means chosen were substantially related to that government interest. All that means is that the courts were looking closely at gender stereotypes to ensure that they were not solely based on stereotypes about the capacity of women. And so after having that reformulated definition of equality and seeing that applied outside of the race context, but also to women, then the next slide deals with another part of equal citizenship, equal participation rights. So we have voting rights recognized in the Constitution. We have equal protection rights to ensure equal participation in our society of men and women, of people not based on race. Um, also, the Equal Protection Clause was interpreted to prohibit discrimination based on marital status against children whose parents weren't married, against a couple if they were not married in terms of exercising their family rights, custody of one's own children. It didn't depend on whether a person was married or not. So the court was looking closely at different kinds of classifications. At the same time, individual liberty rights are another part of the rights that are protected that are part of equal participation and equal citizenship. So we have equal protection rights, we have our voting rights, and back to what I mentioned a little bit a while ago about the idea that the original Constitution did not include the Bill of Rights, that the Bill of Rights was not a limitation on state action. Well, uh, it wasn't until the 1920s when the court began making the Bill of Rights a limitation on state action. And it wasn't until 1923 that the First Amendment was applied uniformly in states the way it was applied at the federal level. So the 1920s began that revolution of recognizing rights, individual rights that needed to be protected in the same way in our states and at the federal level. And then after the Bill of Rights was incorporated, that's the term we use, the court also looked at the same time during the same period in the 1920s at what other liberty rights are protected, what other ways in which the Constitution protects rights that may not be explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. So in 1923, the court recognized that parents have the right to direct the upbringing of their children. In uh, two cases, one in 1923, one in 1921, the 1921 case involved a parent sending their child to school where there was German language instruction and state law prohibited instruction in any other language than English. The case went to the Supreme Court and the court said there is a right that parents have to direct the upbringing of their children and that can include K through 12 instruction in a language other than English. The second case involved religious schools, it was a Catholic school, and whether there was a state law that required all children go to public education and the question was whether a parent in directing the upbringing of the child could send their child to a Catholic school. The Supreme Court said Parents have the right to direct the upbringing of their children. It's a fundamental right, a right that's recognized under the Due Process Clause as part of the liberty that's protected, and parents have that right to direct the upbringing of their children. And after that case, we didn't really see many other fundamental rights being recognized. I have a list of cases. These are the core liberty rights cases, right? So I mentioned 1923, 1921. Um, 1942, the court found that a law that required sterilization of someone who had committed three felonies, that that it was a violation of the right to procreation and family right, the core of our human rights protections. Then that was Skinner versus Oklahoma, 1942. Then 
1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, these were all the cases that we see being discussed in the news these days since the Dobbs case recognized the right of married couples to obtain contraceptives. And then in 1972 in Eisenstadt versus Baird, the court said that the right to obtain contraceptives is not limited to a married couple. It's not dependent on that, but rather it's an individual right. And it held in Eisenstadt versus Baird that single people had a right of access to make decisions about when and whether to have a child and through that, making that decision through access to contraceptives. And because it's an individual right based on personal autonomy. And so the next year is when Roe versus Wade was decided by the court, um, recognizing that there is a zone of privacy building on Griswold because the idea was that married couples in their homes using contraceptives, that the only way we could know about that would be to peer into their windows. And we don't live in a police state. And the idea of trying to enforce that was antithetical to notions of freedom and liberty and, and privacy of one's home. That was the basis of Griswold. And similarly, in Roe versus Wade, the idea of a right to privacy was also part of that decision, the idea that women had the autonomy to make decisions about whether or not to have a child. And not throughout the pregnancy, as we all know, in Roe, there's a trimester framework that was established, but the idea that there is some part of a pregnancy in which women have that autonomy to make that decision. Many of us might or might not choose that, but that it's an individual right for a woman to make that choice. And so Roe versus Wade established that right and set up that trimester framework. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court 19 years later, recognizes the essential holding of Roe versus Wade and um, that there is this right to make decisions about whether or not to have a child, whether or not to choose to terminate pregnancy. And um, in upholding that, recognizing that there was great anticipation that Roe versus Wade might be overruled, but that the Casey court said, and I always like to quote this because it's, it speaks to the broader aspect of how Roe versus Wade fits into broader autonomy rights. So this is what the court said in Casey in a joint decision, that the constitutional protection for personal decisions relating to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child rearing, and education are based on the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted government intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear a child. These matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in their lifetime, choices central to the personal dignity and autonomy, are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. So in recognizing personal autonomy rights, that they are intrinsic to who we are as individuals, as people, um, and how we decide to order our lives, in 2003, the court recognized the right to same-sex intimacy, overruling anti-sodomy laws that had been in place in many states. This quote from Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the idea of the right to have uh, choices that are central to personal dignity and autonomy. And so that idea of these choices that are central to our dignity that are where we have limited government intrusion also, in 2015, in Obergefell versus Hodges, the court decided that marriage equality extended to same-sex couples as it did to opposite-sex couples. And again, about the choice, 
that are central to personal dignity and autonomy to define our own concept of our own existence. And building on the idea of equality in marriage, but the idea of equal participation in our society. Oberger felt really the court there, Justice Kennedy writing the opinion, really focuses on that idea of equal participation, respect. Um, so establishing equal citizenship, essentially, in terms of the rights that are exercised, if we think of the constellation of rights, as well as equal participation. And so that takes us to you know, these series of cases to 2022, when the court um, overruled Roe versus Wade. And that was only, I think the note on my slide points out that that was only after in 2016, the court reaffirmed Roe versus Wade. And then again in 2020, the court reaffirmed Roe versus Wade in looking at restrictions that states had set up on clinical facilities. And so we come to where we are today with um, individual rights and liberties where the court has significant retrenchment in eradicating a right that's been recognized for 50 years and upending people's lives and um, young people, all people, all of us. I mean, we are dealing with that in Kentucky and I, I noticed the comment about Amendment 2. Yes, what Amendment 2 determined is that the Kentucky's constitution may or may not permit abortion. Right. The Kentucky Supreme Court right now is uh, just had a hearing on November 15th last week about that question. But the law that's in place right now in Kentucky, it's a six week ban on abortion with no exception for rape and incest. Right. That's the law here now, which is very extreme. So we're living in right now living through those circumstances where the impact of overruling Roe versus Wade is being experienced in terms of access to the full range of reproductive rights um, and reproductive health care. And so that individual personal and liberty decision is no longer here. And so when we think about voting rights to bring it all together, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, when the court upheld Roe versus Wade, it talked about reliance, about the reliance of women who have organized our lives to participate in economic and social life because we had the opportunity to make decisions about an unwanted pregnancy. And that that gave us the ability to make those decisions and if, if necessary, if that was a choice that someone wanted to make. And that reliance interest is all the more stronger now, 50 years after Roe versus Wade. And so having poured through all of the opinions, Justice Alito in writing the opinion really does not acknowledge the reliance that women have had, and men. This is not just a women's issue. This is a family rights issue. This is a, a question about individual rights, but also many women, I think it's about two-thirds of women who seek abortion already have children, so, so it is often a family decision. So that brings us to what does that mean? What does equal citizenship and equal participation mean today? Um, what does freedom, liberty, and equality mean? And what is our commitment to the Constitution and how we define this constellation of rights that are essential to equal citizenship and equal participation? And what does that mean for us going forward? So I'm hoping that we might have a conversation if anybody has any thoughts about that. These are challenging times, and but we have the opportunity through the exercise of our right to vote to influence legislatures to influence Congress to pass legislation that would protect rights. Um, and it's all the more important. And to nominate Supreme Court justices, it is Senate that uh, does that nomination process, so it matters who's in control in that body as well. All right. Uh -huh.
Yes, so um, the, the justification for overruling Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision based on a few things. So one, and there are five different reasons, none of them really hold up, as you might think. So one of them was that Roe was egregiously wrong when it was decided, and therefore could not stand any longer. And it didn't matter that precedent that had been in place for 49 years because it was egregiously wrong. And what uh, Justice Alito said is the... The reason we know it's egregiously wrong is that states have been opposed to it, that it's still been a controversial issue in our country, and that states have been passing legislation challenging Roe v. Wade, which a lot of states have done, did explicitly to challenge the central holding of Roe. In talking about the reliance interest, they said that there really isn't that much of a reliance interest because, what was the quote? He said something about how um, family planning can immediately address any issues that might come up which of course, no contraception is 100% foolproof. It's not so burdensome because there's an availability of family planning. And a lot of the decision was about why it's okay to overrule precedent, this longstanding precedent. And so I'm trying to think of the, some of the other reasons that, but those were the key ones. Um, the fact that it was egregiously wrong, that states have been challenging it, that the reliance interests were really not as strong as people made them out to be. One of the questions that came up at oral argument was about there are a lot of these safe haven laws, so if someone gives birth, they can bring the child to a safe haven spot so that the idea that carrying a pregnancy to term is not so much of a burden because there are ways in which a child could be adopted. Of course, not recognizing the impact of carrying a child to term. Uh, I have two children, so we're <laughs> forcing anyone to go, to go through that if they don't want to is the idea of forced pregnancy. I loved and had never heard the democratization <clears throat> of the family. I really <laughs> liked that. And then I think it was today on NPR that they were talking about the diminution of our voting rights. All they have to do is gerrymander. Well, and I think it was after they gutted uh, Section 2 in Alabama, one of the things that they did, people had to go to driver's license places to get their voter register to vote. They closed like something like 60 yeah. places, yeah. and they were primarily in counties that had a large majority black population. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. people without cars or means of transportation then could not go, you know, right. to, to register to vote. Yes, question. Um, when you brought up the uh, issue of family autonomy, mm -hmm. the, the uh, ability to choose a parochial school right. or, or, and so on, mm -hmm. how does that relate to current issues about book banning, critical race theory and stuff? That movement is based on this right that was recognized in 1921 and 1923. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a real question. Does the right to direct the upbringing of one's children extend that broadly? Uh, and then the book banning is a First Amendment issue. Libraries get to choose what books they have and, and in making those choices have to make some decisions about content. But parents are, that is the movement, parents' movement to exercise their constitutionally protected rights to shape curricu the curriculum that's in schools and, and what their children are exposed to. And so, they expanded it to, they want to affect everybody else, not just their right, children. Right, right. But I they mean, want to affect yeah, everybody else. I mean, to particularly not, in a public school, you've got a lot of people's autonomy to consider, a lot of family autonomy. Exactly. To consider, is it just majority rule? 
Well, and that's effectively what our Supreme Court has enshrined is majority rule. Mm -hmm. So that's where, where the, the right to choose is a majority rule now, right? And the same thing here. That so, And you're exactly right. You know, K through 12 is supposed to be a place where all students come and there's supposed to be respect for you know, different types and ways of being in the world. And that's what these personal autonomy rights are all about. And how does that happen if, if we're not respecting children, right? And their different ways of looking at the world. When women achieved the right to vote in 1920, black women always voted here in Louisville and in the North, often in larger numbers than white women. It was in the South where black men weren't allowed to vote either. Women had the vote in school elections in Kentucky for a while, but black women were outvoting white women, and so they rescinded that right. You know, they say that if Roe versus Wade falls, mm -hmm. that yes. equal right to marriage yeah. under the law. And, and you said something about this is not a police state. Mm -hmm and that right for um, contraception is based on that. And I wonder if you could clarify that, because I didn't understand before what made them so sure that if Roe fell, that these would fall. And I omitted something critical that I can't even believe I omitted. Justice Alito said Roe was egregiously wrong and that there really were no reliance interests and that the way to identify liberty rights is to look at the practices of the 1848 when the 14th Amendment was adopted. So whatever the practices of the states were at that time, whether abortion was criminalized or not, that's how we should understand the right to choose. And so that rationale could apply to marriage equality, to same-sex intimacy, it could apply to contraceptives. Contraceptives were uniformly banned in 1848 as well. Interracial marriage was banned in 1848 as well. So it's a twin decision. So it's Roe was egregiously wrong. And whatever liberty rights, the, one of the reasons Roe was egregiously wrong is because it defined the liberty too broadly. And the history and tradition is the only way to look and determine what rights exist. We have to look to history and tradition, those rights that are deeply rooted in our history, and if the right is not deeply rooted in our history, looking back to the historical practices of 1848, then it's not a right that should be recognized. And, and you, that's why. Are you saying 48 or 68? Or 1848, oh, when the 14th yeah. Amendment was adopted. So I'm curious, then are you saying or leaning towards being a police state? Is, is that how, are you, am I interpreting that kind of correctly? The rationale that they relied on only looking at what was acceptable in 1848 is a very restricted view of rights. And in thinking about the rights that we've recognized, you know, there were two visions of the Constitution, those who would say, we look to the original intent, right? So what is the original intent of the makers of the 14th Amendment? You know, it's hard to know original intent anyway. You know, there were lots of different intents at the time. Um, all the people who ratified it in the states also have original intent. And what the dissenters said is, if we look to the practices of 1848, women could not vote, did not participate. Black people did not vote and participate. Huge segments of our society were not even viewed as having legitimate agency to be part of so our social life. So that's why using that justification and looking only at practices in place in 1848, it's a justification to look back on that list of cases 
back to <laughs> the right to contraception, the right to same-sex intimacy, which is also built on the idea of how do we know we're intruding into, peeping into the windows of people's homes, so the idea of this uh, zone of privacy that's protected, all of it under that rationale. And notably, the Alito opinion does not cite Obergefell at all. It does not reference Lawrence versus Texas. And both of those cases, building on Roe and Casey, talk about this idea of personal autonomy, the idea to define one's own existence in the world, and how that's critical to our sense of our humanity, which also offered a different way, a more expansive way of thinking of the Constitution, what rights are recognized. And in those two cases, Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell, Justice Kennedy wrote those opinions, and he talked about that history and tradition is one factor to consider, but not the conclusive factor in determining the rights that are protected by our Constitution, that we have to look beyond that. The idea of a Constitution designed to endure throughout the ages, which Chief Justice Marshall said in 1803, that is capable of of adapting and, and being meaningful in our time today. As it was then. Back to the beginning, only white males that own property. Exactly. It is an extraordinarily limited view of rights that are protected. You can get it at, at uh, Carmichael's. There's a, you might have seen it. It's called We Dissent, mm. and it is a little paperback book. And the first part of it is the dissent of Kagan. Oh yes. And 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 it reads really well. It's I mean it's legal, but it reads mm-hmm. very well. And then behind that is Alito and, the, and that right. decision. And I would just recommend that you read it because it's very oh, readable. Thank you so much. My Thank pleasure. Yes, so my much. pleasure. That was Dee Pregliasco, president of the Louisville League of Women Voters, recommending the book, We Dissent, and thanking Professor Enid Trucios haynes for her comprehensive summary and explanation of amendments enacted throughout U.S. history which have affected Americans' rights to vote. And this is Ruth Newman, host of Election Connection, thanking you for listening to and supporting Grassroots Community All-Volunteer Radio at 106.5 FM. Find podcasts of this and other Forward Radio shows at our website, forwardradio.org. See you next time on Election Connection.